0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado is at the center of the baseball universe today as the All-Stars take the field in Denver. We'll preview the big game. We'll also look at why it won't feature many black players.
1: I don't think there's an idol for these kids to look up to right now.
0: Then Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser talks about taking on big tech and the push for antitrust reform.
1: We have a more concentrated, less competitive economy today than any time in over a century. Lots of consumers on a daily basis experiences. When you want to buy an airline ticket, you don't have a lot of choices. Or when you want to use an internet search platform, you don't have a lot of choices. That's a problem.
0: CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry questions Weiser for an event with the Veil vale Symposium. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Tonight's the main event at Coors Field, the All-Star Game, in front of a sell-out crowd. It's the first time the Midsummer Classic has been in Denver since 1998. CPR's baseball fanatic Vic Bella was at last night's Home Run Derby, and he'll be back at the ballpark for the game tonight. Hi, Vic. Hey, Avery. Did you catch any home run balls last night? <laughs>
2: No, and I had a glove and everything. Um, But listen, if you would have seen me play in the outfield during Little League, uh, you probably wouldn't have asked that question.
0: (laughs) What's the scene been like around Coors Field for All-Star Week?
2: Uh, It's just been really electric. It's so much fun to see, you know, the warm weather, sellout crowds, interactive events where fans can meet, you know, their favorite players and stuff. And You know, I was walking through the concourse uh, during the Derby, and it just felt different, felt like on anything I'd I'd felt in a really long time. It it feels like a major event again, and a lot of smiles on people's faces. And Remember, Avery, this is like the first major fan-driven event of the pandemic, since the pandemic, and honestly, from a reporter standpoint, it's just so nice being able to go and talk to people in person again, and... The players themselves were super excited to be back in front of fans at the All-Star game, really, for the first time since 2019. I talked to uh, Chicago Cubs All-Star Chris Bryant, and he expressed a lot of gratitude for being here.
1: Like, it's just, it's been really cool to be a part of that and feel somewhat back to normal. Um, So, yeah, you just have an appreciation for the game a little bit more and realize, like, hey, like, you know, don't take this for granted
0: uh, that is a good feeling. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a lot of big names playing in tonight's All Star game. That, that is the point. But one <laughs> seems to really stand out right now. Tell me about Japanese sensation Shohei Otani.
2: Oh, gosh. You know, Avery, the word sensation really doesn't do it justice. And, and, and I'm not being, you know, I'm not exercising hyperbole. You know, uh, you, know, you know, sometimes the news media is criticized for hyping up a lot of angles, um, but this one's coming from the players themselves. Like everyone in the all-star game, they're talking about Otani and the introductory press conference yesterday, about 90% of the, the press conference was about him. Um, and the presence of Japanese baseball media has just been incredible. And, you know, even though he didn't win the home run derby, he absolutely crushed baseballs and fans were ooing and awing and standing and cheering loudly when he was at the plate. Uh, and now today he's going to become the first player in history to pitch and hit in an all-Star game, which is just incredible. And I was talking to, to a fan named Brett Sherrett. He's from Aurora, huge baseball fan and he really put in perspective the historical talent that Otani is.
1: You know, we didn't, we didn't get to see Babe Ruth. You know, so to see somebody that can pitch the ball and hit the ball, it's pretty it's pretty one of one of a lifetime type of thing. So I don't think it's going to become more common. I just think this guy is a special guy.
0: Now, Vic, the Rockies are having a disappointing season, but they do have two players featured this week. Trevor Story had a good showing at last night's home run derby and pitcher Irman Marquez will be the only Rockies player on tonight's National League roster. Talk about the seasons that they're having and what we can expect to see from Marquez tonight.
2: Well, let's start with Marquez because he's such a great story. Uh, Came from Venezuela and by all accounts, one of the most humble people in the Rockies locker room. Uh, He almost threw the first ever no-hitter at Coors Field this season, which is remarkable. And he's only 26 and he'll be playing in his first ever All-Star game tonight. It's well-deserved. And as for Trevor's story, you know, as you said, he he had a really good showing. Uh, and before the, the home run derby yesterday, uh, he talked about the pride he was taking in, in representing the National League. You know, I think you know, anytime you're chosen to do an event like this, um, it's pretty special. So, um, yeah, I want to go out there and represent well for Colorado and our fans. And he did uh, made it to the second round of the derby, really exceeding expectations, I would say. But, you know, sadly for Rockies fans, the reality is now attention turns towards uh, Story's future on the team and how much longer he'll even be a Rocky. Um, And Avery, one last thing on, on Trevor's story. He's sharing a locker this week with his old teammate, someone Rockies fans know very well, Nolan Arenado of the St. Louis Cardinals. It's still really painful to even say those words.
0: Yeah. And what happens after Story gets traded?
2: Well, I mean, it, it, uh, questions will once again uh, be asked of the Rockies front office. Uh, you know, I mentioned Arenado when he left uh, and the Rockies really didn't get a lot for him in terms of uh, the trade. Fans were irate. I hadn't seen anything like that uh, in Denver sports scene in, in a long time. And if Trevor goes too, I think you're going to see another season of uh, hurt feelings and uh, angry emotions uh, from fans.
0: Well, Vic, thank you so much. Have fun at the game tonight.
2: Hey, thank you.
0: CPR's Vic Vela will be at tonight's game. Follow him on Twitter at VicVela1. Thanks, Vic. Major League Baseball's diversity will be on display during tonight's All-Star Game in Denver, but while fans will cheer on many Latino players from different countries, the game won't feature many black players. Vic's also been looking into this and found baseball is struggling to attract them.
3: Jackie Robinson steps in against Ford. Deep in the left center, Irv Noren races after Robinson's blast. Jackie really teed off on Ford.
2: When you look back at the greatest moments in baseball history, some of the most romantic memories involve black players who once dominated this sport. Jackie Robinson breaking baseball's color barrier in 1947, the incredible overhead catch by Willie Mays in the 1954 World Series, and hammering Hank Aaron's record-breaking 715th home run in 1974. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are
1: going. Henry Aaron is coming around third. His teammates are at home plate. And listen to this crowd!
2: Nick Dixon is an African-American head coach for Aurora's Hinkley High School baseball team. His black baseball hero growing up? Uh, Griffey is the guy. Griffey Jr. was my guy. A
0: mammoth home run
1: by Ken Griffey Jr. And both of them tonight have been tape major
2: jobs. His swing, pure swing. Greatest swing ever, right? Absolutely. You know, imagine I was him always growing up. But since the days when Ken Griffey Jr. dominated baseball in the 90s, the number of black players in the major leagues has dropped significantly. And Coach Dixon, who is one of only a few African-American baseball coaches in Colorado high school sports, laments that in a game once dominated by black superstars, many youths often don't see themselves represented. I don't think there's an idol for these
1: kids to look up to right now.
2: From 1981 to 1991, black representation in Major League Baseball largely stayed around 18 percent. And in 1995, the year black players like Griffey, Tony Gwynn, and Albert Bell dominated with their bats, that number was even slightly higher. But that was the high-water mark. Since then, the percentage of black players in the majors has dropped year after year all the way to what it is today, just under 8%. Those stats are compiled by Richard Lapchick. He's the director of the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport. If you're a 13-year-old black boy in the seventh grade and you're trying to decide what sport you're going to play, you have a ton of role models in the NBA and the NFL and not so many in Major League Baseball. And Lapchick says when kids don't see many people who look like them in a sport, they're less inclined to play it. And that's had a trickle-down effect to college and high school all the way to t-ball. Black interest in baseball has been down across the board for decades now. Ethan Adams is black. He's a recent high school grad who played baseball for Coach Dixon's Hinkley team. Yeah, I see that a lot, especially in Colorado. A lot of the kids, like, throughout all the teams that I've seen, that I've played against, been on, there's, like, a dominance of mostly white people. So why is baseball having such a hard time attracting black players? Well, there's a number of reasons, but let's start with the cost. Chris Mann is an African-American head coach for North Glen High School's baseball team. We've become a very expensive game to play, and, you know, that's hurt everyone from top to bottom. Mann's mostly talking about club sports, which usually offers a more elevated level of play for kids who are trying to get the attention of major league and college scouts. But Mann says club dues can cost up to $10,000 for a season. And that doesn't include travel. Then there's the cost of the equipment you need just to play the game. Basketball, you need, you know, a pair of shoes and a basketball, really. Baseball, you need a bat, you need a glove, you need a pair of cleats. You know, and all those are a couple hundred bucks each. And for a lot of parents who have to decide how to spend their family's money, it's not much of a choice at all says Hinckley's Eric Adams.
1: Mostly I think it's because of money
2: and family. Because a lot of kids quit sports to take care of their family or they don't have enough money to pay for it. Major League Baseball has tried a lot of things over the years to attract more black players. There's the Players' Alliance, a group of current and former black players that donates baseball equipment to communities of color across the country. And the Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities program aims to get more kids playing baseball in underserved communities. MLB and the Colorado Rockies recently awarded $5 million to Denver-area community programs, including RBI. Jim Kellogg is a Rockies executive.
1: And Major League Baseball has diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that have just started within the past few years, and every team has a DEI committee. We're making a concerted effort to change the look of our game.
2: And Richard Lapchick of the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport says the league did the right thing politically when they moved the All-Star game out of Georgia after new laws were enacted there that many feel restrict voting rights. You know, there are a lot of people in the black community who noticed that and appreciated that. That's going to make black people feel more comfortable with
3: baseball in general.
2: And there's hope elsewhere, too. Lapchick says the number of black players selected in the Major League Baseball draft has been on the rise. That includes players who benefited from programs like RBI growing up. The black coaches and players I spoke with for this story say that while there are a lot of hurdles to getting more black kids to play the game, one thing that's really important is to simply play catch with your child. DJ Wilson is Hinckley coach Nick Dixon's son, DJ says the bonds he established with his dad started by throwing a ball around in a park. It's given me so much in terms
0: of just like a connection with my dad. Like we connect so much when I was playing. It's
2: just so much of a fun pastime. The pastime that Nick Dixon says many black kids are missing out on.
1: That is a huge part of just what you want to be in life. Like you want to see people that are doing things that look like you come from where you came from. If you see somebody doing it it's possible for you to achieve that goal.
2: And Dixon hopes that someday soon, the game will once again be the home of black heroes like the ones he grew up watching.
3: There's a pitch to Willie. Swung on,
0: hit deep to left. That one is way back, way back, way back. Well, right by number 600 for Willie Mays. And the Giants come to home place a
3: greeting.
0: Number 600 for Mays. He hit it over the 370 foot mark. A standing
2: ovation here in San Diego for Willie. I'm Vic Valla, CPR News.
0: Attorneys general from 48 states, including Colorado, were recently dealt a major blow. A federal judge tossed out an antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. The AGs and the Federal Trade Commission accused Facebook of engaging in a monopoly and anti-competitive practices. The judge called the lawsuit legally insufficient. CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry spoke with Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser about this at a recent virtual event for the Vail Symposium.
1: My job as an antitrust enforcer is to bring cases, to marshal the facts and the law that I believe in, and ideally to move the courts to recognize anti-competitive conduct that violates section two of the Sherman Act. This is a law that was passed 130 years ago. It's a simple law which bans monopolization. What I would suggest for everyone here to think about is if a company engages in a, I'm either going to buy off my rivals or I'm going to bury them, there's something wrong with that. That is a problem. If the court's attitude, generally speaking now, are informed by, and I'm going to get a little wonky here, the Chicago School of Antitrust, which means I'm going to assume that over-enforcement is the problem. And if we don't enforce enough, that's not a worry because the market will fix it. As an initial critique of antitrust law in the 1960s, the Chicago critique had some merit. However, as we're now seeing courts in a multiple number of cases, there was a case involving Qualcomm in the Ninth Circuit, which is another example we could cite, we're seeing a level of hostility and skepticism informed by the Chicago School of Antitrust. That's problematic. We have a more concentrated, less competitive economy today than any time in over a century. Lots of consumers on a daily basis experiences. When you wanna buy an airline ticket, you don't have a lot of choices. Or when you wanna use a internet search platform, you don't have a lot of choices, that's a problem. And it's a problem if companies are using their monopoly power to squelch competition and prevent rivals. That's why we brought the Facebook case. That's why we brought the case involving Google. That's why antitrust is one of my top priorities as attorney general.
3: I think that that's a very valid point to make. But, you know, with all due respect, the judge completely disagreed with you. So what happens now? Do you do you try to refile? Do you try to make a better case? Do you think the case that you made was flawed?
1: I wouldn't bring a case if I thought it was fundamentally flawed and worthy of being dismissed on what we call a motion to dismiss. We believe that we are kicking the tires hard on patterns of behavior that is problematic, that deserves to be called out, that is a viable, as lawyers would put it, cause of action. What we have to figure out how we do well is make our case. Um, Whenever you have a ruling you don't like, you have a number of options, we're gonna consider those options and and we'll go forward. I am playing a long game here. I am not about to give up on what I believe the people have thought and trust me to do, which is protect consumers and protect competition. Um, we're gonna keep doing that.
3: So we're all on Facebook, probably a lot of people on this who are listening to the symposium are on Facebook. Tell me specifically, give me like an example if you can, not to totally put you on the spot, but it's sort of my job right now um, of what you think Like, if I'm going to scroll Facebook for six minutes while I'm sitting there waiting for a bus or something, like, what would I see that is particularly problematic or anti competitive?
1: Well, you're very good at your job. So it's always a pleasure to be interviewed by you. What I would say is the following users of Facebook right now don't have much of a choice. If you want to be on a personal social networking platform, you have Facebook or not much else. So, what we have is, in effect, the policies that Facebook dictates, for example, on what type of privacy we get, or how much they charge advertisers, which then get passed on to us, that's not a healthy ecosystem. There was a time, and we detail this in the complaint, call it 2006, when MySpace was a robust competitor and alternative to Facebook. At that point, Facebook was on their toes. They had to offer better privacy policies. Maybe they were less aggressive offering advertisements. We want to have companies competing in a marketplace having to offer a better product, and if they instead are a dominant firm who doesn't have to worry about competition and can undermine rivals through predatory behavior, that hurts consumers.
3: Do you think though that um, last fall, we saw some of this, some new competitors rise up with Donald Trump being banned from Twitter, um, a lot of his followers went to Parlor. They went to, um, I think it's called MeWe. I didn't write that down. So I don't remember that right off the top of my head. There was something else called Gab, I think, but we've also seen the emergence of TikTok. There have been some other things come in this space that I would argue, you know, does actually present some challenges for Facebook. Now, maybe they're attempting to buy all these things right now and I don't know it, but Um, You know, do you think that maybe there is some ingenuity here or do you think that Facebook still just completely rules the market and bad?
1: Over time, we will know and we will see whether rivals to Facebook emerge. What concerns me and what motivates the complaint is over the last particularly decade, Facebook singled out those most threatening would-be rivals and bought them all. Those they couldn't buy off, Vine comes to mind. They were uh, founded by Twitter. They work to deny access to key resources, interoperability and data, so they buried them. The challenge for any would-be rival to Facebook right now is will they be given fair access to data, data portability, interoperability to critical resources on the Facebook platform? As long as Facebook can play games, singling out some firms who are a rival to undermine them or to buy them, they will apparently do just that. That's why we brought this case, to stop that anti-competitive behavior and to protect competition.
3: And just to remind the the viewers that the rivals you're referring to are Instagram and WhatsApp, both of which were purchased in, I think, 2014 by Facebook, 2013 or 2014.
1: In the early years, I think it was, yes, in that time period somehow. Uh, For those who are looking for additional reading, the complaint is quite lengthy and tells that story. Um, You can find it on our website.
3: So I want to stick with this just for a little bit. Um, You know, the the case against Facebook has been pretty bipartisan across the country. It's interesting. There's a number of interesting bedfellows in this space fighting against Facebook. Uh, Congressman Ken Buck, uh, whose politics I'm sure you don't uh, share a great deal with, um, is also pretty outspoken about the need for antitrust reform. When they say the word antitrust reform, what does that mean to you?
1: I had the chance to visit with Congressman Buck and Congressman DeGoose, who are, as you put it, strange bedfellows, but mm-hmm. what unites them both is a shared commitment to protecting competition and consumers. There are a few areas that are ready for reform. The high level message is the one I articulated earlier. We need to give courts the clear message that over enforcement is not a core problem to be avoided at all costs. That's the Chicago school story I mentioned. Instead, we need more robust antitrust enforcement. When we look back in the airline industry, what we see is over the last 20 years, almost no entry into the airline industry. That follows some bad decisions, and those bad decisions really undermined a predatory pricing argument that was brought by the Department of Justice when I was there initially working for Joel Klein. He was the head of the antitrust vision. And since that decision allowed predatory pricing, we haven't seen entry. Moreover, we've seen mergers in that industry such that consumers have less choice. The message to courts has to be, that's bad for competition and consumers. The same message, by the way, needs to be internalized by enforcers like myself. We need vigilance.
0: Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser talking with CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry for the Vail Symposium. When we come back, what does Weiser think Congress can do to help AGs achieve reform and distinction between free speech and fake news? I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
1: How
2: can policing change to do less harm to people of color? I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters, encouraging you to listen to the podcast Systemic with host Joe Erickson. Meet people determined to change the status quo from inside and out. Joe brings a wealth of experience reporting on criminal justice and racial justice. Her stories take you beyond the headlines and into people's heads. Come to cPR.org/systemic or hear it anywhere you listen.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Let's get back to the conversation between CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry and Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser through the Vail Symposium. They're talking about antitrust reform and a judge's recent dismissal of a bipartisan lawsuit accusing Facebook of anti-competitive practices. Allison asked Weiser what he'd like to see Congress do.
1: Make sure state AGs are fully able to enforce the antitrust laws. That we're not actually marginalized as players. We need more officials standing up for enforcement. State AGs were given a lot of authority in an earlier congressional act called the Scott rodino Act. We need some additional protection so we're on all fours and a respected enforcers just like the feds. We also want to make sure there's enough funding for the feds to both do enforcement and do retrospectives of cases like the Steason Company case I mentioned. And finally, we need to give the message to the courts not to be so skeptical about some of the sorts of cases that I've mentioned, instead to recognize we have got a major problem on our hands of not enough competition in our economy.
3: So it seems like what you're saying is it doesn't necessarily mean reform, like there needs to be a bunch of new laws that need to be passed around antitrust. It's that you need to have more teeth, more resources behind enforcing existing laws, not necessarily that there needs to be new laws passed.
1: I would not disturb the basic architecture. We have these really majestic antitrust laws that are short and are to the point and have been interpreted by the courts. The problem we have mostly right now is we've seen some courts acting with a undue skepticism towards enforcement. With a few clarifications, I think we could see uh, what you might call a congressional back pitch to the courts to say, guys, you're crowding out antitrust enforcement. You need to give it a little more room.
3: I like that you called that that law majestic. By the way, you're such a lawyer,
1: right? It is majestic. I mean, here's the thing: the Antitrust Act of uh, Sherman Act of 1890 is written on a few pages with grand phrases like "barring restraints of trade or monopolization." Um, that is a thing of beauty, and antitrust lawyers have learned to love it.
3: <laughs> I love it. I've one more Facebook question, and then and then we're going to move to Google. Um, but I, And I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's an interesting rabbit hole, which is about algorithms and the Facebook algorithms. Um, and you and I have talked about this before. Um, there's some infamous Facebook algorithms and on the 2016 election that led Russians, it, uh, they were able to actually get in and purposely purchase ads that were fake and promoting false fake news, purposely inflammatory. Purposefully divisive for our democracy. A lot of that has come out in the last five years. You know, Facebook, in light of several congressional and government investigations, has vowed to change this. And, you know, interestingly, what it has done for the news industry, which is what I'm in, they started de-emphasizing news. And they started trying to promote more family photos and the old, they they had this whole ad that was like, it's the old Facebook that you remember from the past. I wondered what your role as an attorney general or the federal government's role would be in regulating algorithms if that's even possible
1: a few different answers first is if we had competitive platforms and facebook was only one of them the decision of each platform would be less consequential this is why the Colorado springs gazette which leans pretty right has been very appreciative of my leadership on antitrust because In a world where you have dominant control of information, there are gonna be concerns about how different viewpoints are treated. That's not healthy from an information ecosystem perspective. Secondly, and I'll put another speech of mine in the chat, which I gave to the College Institute. We all should be worried about the state of our democracy and the state of people's getting information that is leading them to be operating in separate worlds from one another with more and more demonization. We need news outlets like Colorado Public Radio that tell it straight, inform people, let them make up their own opinions. If instead you're trying to give people facts that are made up to cater to what people already believe, whether the election was fair or stolen, to take a notable recent example, that's not healthy. And we need to create more space where people can have shared facts and then civil and respectful discussions. To the extent the algorithms encourage demonization or hating or people refusing to listen to one another, that's a threat to democracy. And I am working on a project as incoming chair of the Attorney General's Alliance, which mostly has uh, Western AGs, but open to others. How do we work together in a way that models the type of engagement we saw from Justices Ginsburg and Scalia. And I worked for Justice Ginsburg when she was very much intellectually engaged and friends with Scalia, even though they disagreed. We need that mindset. Ken Buck and Jonah Goose, as you mentioned before, or myself and other state AGs, including some I'm working with on this Google case. That is the way our nation, our democratic republic, is at its best. And finally, can governments, as opposed to call it citizens or norms do something directly here we're in a very difficult space because of the first amendment and the problem with speech and regulating or preferring different speech is the government risks picking sides and the government is not necessarily well set to do that and even as facebook has to decide how to handle different information it, it is in a difficult position i'll give you an example that we all are thinking about now, which is to what extent is it possible that COVID-19 came out of a lab in China? That was floated a year ago and there was an article in the New Yorker about it and a lot of people were like, oh, we can't believe that because Senator Tom Cotton suggested that was a possibility. Um, That's not a good reason to believe or not believe anything. We should take ideas, analyze them on the merits and if a good idea comes from any political party or person, it should be analyzed on the merits. That unfortunately is not necessarily the world we're always living in. Uh, that's the world we need to get back to.
3: Do you have a sense, you brought up the Supreme Court and a couple of, of justices and a former justice. Um, do you uh, think that this the high court has a will eventually have some say or a role here? I mean, you know, I'm asking you to predict the future, but um, do you think eventually this is gonna have to be settled? With
1: respect to the future of antitrust law, the Supreme court is absolutely going to be making decisions. And part of the challenge is the Supreme court hasn't made many decisions in any trust law. There are not a lot of precedents. So we're looking at section two, for example, one of the most important precedents is a case from the early 1980s from here in Colorado called the Aspen skiing case, which involved a company that owned three mountains in Aspen and decided to engage in discriminatory unfair conduct towards a rival owned one mountain that um, was judged to be a violation of section two of the Sherman act. It's a leading precedent today. The second leading precedent was a case that came uh, about 20 years ago called Verizon versus Trinko. I had worked on that case uh, on the losing side, of Verizon 1. They were accused of denying interoperability in a way that violated section two for a whole series of complicated reasons, Verizon won that case. If you're looking at 40 years of economic history and you ask well, how many important section two precedents are there and the answer is two, Um, That doesn't seem like Supreme Court has been deeply engaged in this conversation. So yes, they will need to get engaged. The Microsoft case might be a third important precedent that was not decided by the Supreme Court, however. So um, it is still an important one, but not a Supreme Court precedent. With regard to the issue around speech and Facebook, the challenge is the First Amendment says the government doesn't regulate um, speech with an eye to picking what speech it likes, which means it doesn't like. Um, Facebook has created their own, if you will, Facebook Supreme Court, which reviewed the um, decision to bar President Trump from the platform. Um, that's because they're a private company and they've got to make those decisions. Uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I think that's where this is interesting because I, uh, you know, I'm asking you what the government's role is in regulating a company and how it decides to use its own algorithm. Which, you know, I think on its face, a lot of people would say there's no role there. But you, you know, you well, mean-
1: I, I do want to mention one other point, Allison, because you're, yes. you're probing an important issue. You could imagine governments demanding transparency because transparency is not dictating speech. It just says, if you're putting a thumb on the scale and you're showing people certain types of speech and not others, tell them. Huh. If, if there was a social networking platform that said to people, we have algorithms that dictate what you're gonna see, would you like to see lots of different types of ideas so you can make up your own mind? Or do you want us to feed you ideas that drive you further and further into one corner?
3: That would that be we're a created question by a Russian case. bot.
1: <laughs> there you go. So that would be, um, you know, an area that I'd love to see more discussion about because you've mentioned this point about algorithms. I'm guessing even a lot of our viewers here I know are super smart, aren't necessarily mm-hmm. fully even aware or haven't analyzed critically that what we're seeing on these platforms. It's not just sort of a automatic thing. It's dictated by these algorithms, which have certain
3: consequences to them. And I think people probably maybe have noticed it too. I mean, maybe some changes. And it's interesting to think that Facebook, you could log in and you could actually have a survey or a five question survey. It's like, what would you want to see more of? Um, I don't know if that makes it more transparent. I guess it gives you a little bit more choice as a consumer.
1: Well, as someone who protects consumers, I care a lot about transparency. It's worth giving a plug here for Colorado. We just passed the third law in the nation that gives consumers protection in their data, data privacy. If you don't want your information to be used in ways where you're tracked and that information is sold to others so you can be marketed, you have now the right to opt out. And our office will be working on implementing that. And that's an area where again, consumers may not even realize that is happening, we want to create that awareness and give consumers that choice.
3: Can you give um, some example of the state law that just passed and how that would affect their lives, Um, you know, like a real life example of something?
1: All of us are using online services of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the algorithm issue we're just talking about, a lot of us aren't even thinking about the fact that our information is all being captured, stored, and sold to so-called data brokers so that we are going to get marketed products based on data about us that gets sold. There are protections in narrow areas, healthcare data, for example, financial data. But a lot of the data that we are entering online is gonna be used in ways that we probably wouldn't want if we knew about it. So this law says to every company that collects data, which is a lot of companies online, you need to tell your customers that you collect data and that you store it and that you may sell it And if they want to opt out from that, they have the right to do that.
3: So when you're on a website and it says, you do accept the cookies, is that what that means?
1: So that's slightly different. Um, Cookies means they're tracking where you're going online. Okay. What this is gonna say is something more like, as a company, we collect data about what websites you're on, what you're buying, what you're looking at. We then sell that to third parties who may use it for marketing purposes. If you do not want us to do that, click here for an easy opt-out.
3: Wow, so that if you're a Colorado consumer living in Colorado and online shopping, companies, you're gonna have to figure out a way to make that enforceable. So companies are gonna have to have that pop up if you're sitting in Colorado because it's a state law.
1: You've put your finger on one of the elements here that's slightly uncomfortable. In the first best world, we'd have a federal law that would protect privacy. As it turned out a decade ago, I was working for president Obama, pushing that idea. A decade later with no federal action, Colorado has said, and in our state Senate, this passed unanimously. So this was not like a controversial topic. Right, right. All across the spectrum, people in Colorado and their representatives are like, we want control of our data. We want the right to opt out and not have it sold without our consent. It should be national. That would be easier for companies to follow. But unfortunately our legislature is not functioning um, at the national level, the way it is in the state level. So we're still waiting.
3: Let's shift just to Google. Talked about Facebook so much. I don't want to ignore Google completely because I know that you're mad at them too and you have filed a lawsuit. What's your concern sort of broadly about that search engine and how it negatively affects consumers?
1: I should say, I don't take any of this personally. Google has (laughs) the right to decide how to conduct its business. I have the right and obligation to decide if it violates any trust laws. If they think I'm wrong, they can oppose me in court and the process will play out. And what I've observed with Google is what I observed with Microsoft. I mentioned before I worked for Joel Klein, he is an extraordinary lawyer and person, and he was the architect of the Microsoft case. What the Microsoft case established was Microsoft is not allowed to basically cut off the air supply of rivals. And that, by the way, was a quote from Bill Gates about Netscape, who had a Navigator product. The Netscape Navigator threatened to basically undermine the operating system as something consumers needed. Because if you got all of your applications on top of your browser and not on top of your operating system, you might decide, I don't care what operating system I have. That threat was one that Microsoft took seriously. And they proceeded to enter into a range of restrictive contracts that sought to cut off their air supply, limit their distribution. They sought to create a lack of interoperability with their platform so that Netscape's product wasn't as functional or as effective, and they generally sought to handicap their rival. Google has also identified threats from different vectors, if you will. One of them is the Internet of Things. If everyone is using voice-activated search technology Mm -hmm. and your specific search engine is not what you're picking, that can be a big threat to Google. So what's Google done about that? It sought to lock up all the distribution channels in connected cars making it impossible for a would-be rival to get a foothold there. Similarly, Google knows that these so-called vertical services like a Yelp could be the basis of a rival search engine platform. So they've sought to undermine their position in the marketplace in a systematic way. That type of predatory campaign, preying on rivals, not competing on the merits, violated the antitrust laws in the Microsoft case. We believe it violates the antitrust laws in the Google case as well.
3: When you say the cars, are you saying that they have they have locked in? So if you are using your voice activated in a car to search for an address of a restaurant, for example, when you're driving, Google controls that.
1: Yes. And just to be clear, this is Google's second time around. When the world transitioned from the desktop to mobile, mm-hmm. Google locked up mobile distribution by having restrictive contracts with the mobile broadband providers, as well as with Apple, the other main platform, Google of course controls Android, one of the platforms. And so Mm -hmm. Google locked up the mobile ecosystem so that rivals couldn't enter effectively with mobile search. Now that we're in internet of things search with cars being a notable example, they're doing the same thing.
3: That's interesting. Um, And the auto manufacturers are kind of just going along with that.
1: This This is an example of what monopoly power looks like. When you have both the money and the influence in the market, such that would-be partners like auto companies or AT&T and Verizon on the broadband side basically feel they have no choice but to go with you. That's an example that you have monopoly power that companies feel like they can't say no to you. And Google's been willing to use that monopoly power. They've also told those auto companies, you want to use Google Maps, you have to use Google Search as well.
3: So that was a case filed with, I think there are 49 attorneys general filed um, a suit um, against Google. Is that correct? You're you're being accurate.
1: And to be precise, I would say there were two separate cases. If you add them together, I believe the number is 49. 38 were on the case that Colorado led with Nebraska. And then I believe 11 joined the, the federal department of justice in a parallel case. The vision is the two cases will be uh, working together in tandem. And we have a trial date for September, 2023. So we've got some time before this gets to a courtroom.
3: Um, I do wanna ask you about any update you may have on the opioid settlement money. Um, It was a $570 million settlement nationally. Colorado got a 10 million chunk of change from that. It's been five months-ish since that money. I don't know if you've gotten it yet, but any sense of where the money's gonna go in the state? Thank you
1: for asking about that. The framework we are building is going to be a regional framework. The money that will be spent will be spent on a regional basis. And so we are in the process of working with local government actors to develop what that looks like. And the idea is we'll have a set of regions with their own governing bodies to get the lion's share of this money and to spend it to serve a range of efforts that will serve those communities. Drug treatment, drug recovery, education prevention are top of those lists. We're also going to work with some of that money at the state level that we would spend for statewide concerns, like how do we get more people in the workforce to engage in behavioral health, particularly for a lot of our communities where they're suffering real workforce shortage. The first money, as you note, is in the door. We do have the check. Okay. There are some other settlements that are coming close in. The New York attorney general just settled uh, that state's case against Johnson & Johnson. Uh, We are gonna be working towards national settlement, we hope as well with Johnson & Johnson, as well as others. Uh, There's a litigation going on in bankruptcy court involving Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. We've been very active in that case as well. The goal will be towards the end of this year, not just this McKinsey settlement that we led, but these other cases to have the money eligible and then we'll have to work up this plan I mentioned so that we're ready to put it into motion. So the second half of the year promised to be an important time as we conduct this work. Um, I wanna give you a shout out because I often told people what a big problem this was. And in the San Luis Valley, for example, 90% of the people who are in the jail in Alamosa County were addicted to opioids. And the sheriff there was frustrated because he wasn't really addressing the problem. People didn't believe that story until you told it for CPR and your credibility and track record led people to think twice. This is a major challenge. It's also a challenge that we're not going to have as much money as we need. We have about 30 percent of the treatment we need in Colorado. This settlement fund will be valuable. What we really need is to use other funds as well so that we make this critical front-end investment in better treatment, recovery, and education and prevention. If we can all be more mindful of substance abuse disorder and mental health issues more broadly, I think we can better support one another.
3: When you say like the San Luis Valley, and that we, you know, both of us have been down there a number of times. I know you want to concentrate some resources there because the problem was so bad there. Would that be rehab centers? Would that be bricks and mortar, like a new building? Would you have exist? Are there existing resources like just helping the sheriff? with a couple of staffers who could, you know, maybe help with the treatment piece and not just cycling these people in and out of jail who are addicted, what, what is it? I mean, are there any examples you can give that would kind of?
1: So literally this is a whole nother hour conversation we can and okay. should have because <laughs> okay. if you go across the state and ask this question, you're gonna get a lot of different answers. Part of okay. what I think we're gonna see in Colorado is a range of experiments. And one of our goals is to best nurture, support, look over and share results. So yes to everything you said. Some parts of our state says we're going to build a inpatient drug treatment center. That's what we really need. Others will say we need more recovery support. So after people are an inpatient, they stay clean. Other people say we need more trained professionals who can be in the jails and other places giving people medication assisted treatment. Another one says we're going to use more telemedicine approaches that are going to help people in these centers get access to trained addiction counselors and everything else that you can imagine to address what has been a true crisis. Um, When I went to the San Luis Valley talking about the future of the Valley, I wanted to talk about agriculture or the outdoor rec economy or other job opportunities. And and what I heard back is, we're not gonna have a bright economic future until we address this opioid crisis.
3: Um, You've mentioned, and this uh, this is kind of going back to the antitrust stuff again, you've mentioned a couple of examples of Bad behavior in sectors. You mentioned the airline industry. Obviously, we talked about Google and Facebook for a long time. You've mentioned to me some good examples of good antitrust behavior in streaming services. You've mentioned, you know, because you can get a device, an Apple device, or you can stream it on your computer, or you can get a Roku, and you can buy all these different kinds of, you know, Netflix and Hulu and Whatever you want and you can stream whatever you want and they're all competing right now and they're trying to have the best movies and whatever. Um, Amazon is in there. You mentioned that as a good example, correct?
1: Yes. It gives lots of choice for consumers which streaming service you want to sign up for.
3: That's true, and lots of options. Um, if you don't wanna if you don't want one because you don't like Amazon, for example, you can you don't have to miss all the good stuff. You can get Netflix or whatever. Give me, if you could give me one or two other sector examples, I'd love to know where else this is very healthy in in our economy right now.
1: Well, first, I want to give an example that's historical, but directly on point. When the AT&T case was brought and settled with the consent decree, there was a major change. Before the case, Dow Corning wanted to sell fiber optic cable to AT&T, which was then a monopolist. And AT&T said, we're not going to buy fiber optic cable from you. Whenever we finish depreciating our copper network, we'll do it ourselves. And then that was going to be like 10 or more years away. After the litigation ended and Sprint and M- MCI had a chance to compete fairly, they bought fiber optic cable. Sprint, some people may remember, ran a commercial that you could hear a pin drop on the Sprint network, but you couldn't hear that on the at and network. at and immediately after that commercial wrote off their copper network, placed an order for fiber optics, and improved their product. That's what competition looks like and brings to consumers.
0: Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser speaking with CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry for the Vail Symposium about the state's fight against big tech. We'll link the entire conversation, which was streamed live at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team.
1: Carl Bielek.
0: Ali Butner.
1: Anthony Cotton.
2: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
3: Carla
2: Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner.
0: And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.